Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise, from 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm. My name is Mark Arlapage, and you are listening to Entree Architect Podcast, where each week I speak with inspiring, passionate people who share their knowledge and expertise, all to help you build a better business as a small firm entrepreneur architect. This is episode 295. And this week at Entree Architect Podcast, value engineering. There is a better way. My conversation with Andrew Zukoski, founder of Join.Build. This episode of Entree Architect Podcast is supported by our platform sponsors, RCAT, the online resource delivering quality building material information, CAD details, BIM specifications, and so much more at RCAT.com, and FreshBooks, the cloud-based accounting software that makes running your small firm easy, fast, and secure. Spend less time on accounting and more time doing the work you love. Andrew Zukoski, welcome to Entree Architect Podcast. Thank you, Mark. Andrew Zukoski is a co-founder and the CEO of Join Incorporated. Join is a venture-backed software startup whose tools help commercial construction teams square cost and design, getting the most program and design out of finite budgets. Andrew's background is in software development, first in 3D printing and architectural design, and for the last several years, the construction industry. He received his undergraduate degree from, uh, in electrical engineering and visual art from Rice University. Andrew and Join are members of the current cohort uh, at the AEC Accelerator 060. Last week, we had Herman Aparicio, the co-founder at 060, on the show. And so for an introduction to 060, you can go back to that episode. That's episode 294. 
So entrearchitect.com slash episode 294. We'll give you that full conversation and that background on 060 and what it is. Essentially, 060 is an accelerator, which invites uh, companies to come in and work with 060 for resources and, and support and all that kind of thing so they can grow very quickly. And, and we'll, we'll get into it a little bit with our guest today. Um, and after I spoke with Herman last week, I thought it would be great to invite some of the founders working with 060 uh, to learn more about their companies and to learn more about their ideas for improving the AEC industry. So before we get into that, Andrew, I want to learn more about you. Uh, so go back to where you discovered your passion for what you do today and give us the origin story of you uh, to where you find yourself today. Yeah, I can do that. Um, it starts with a radioactive spider in the streets of New York <laughs> and goes from there. But um, Well, this uh, is no, going to so be I, a good uh, story. Good yeah, yeah, if only. Um a little, a little more prosaic. Uh, I grew up in Illinois and went to school um, in Texas, and then um, I eventually landed in the Bay Area uh, and walked in off the street to a five-person software startup that was building. Um, uh, I wasn't even really a software startup. We were creating 3D printed um, hand and wrist braces, and um, I'd had a little bit of experience writing software, doing code, and um, things clicked well with the team, and they hired me. Was that af so I, after Rice or before Rice? Uh, just after Rice. So you graduated um, and then and then found yourself over in the, in the Valley? Yeah, with about nine months of um, bartending and working in a lab <laughs> and um, an internship and um, road trips in between, you know, sort of yeah. standard early 20s stuff, I think. Sure, living life. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I uh, came into the San Francisco Bay Area in 2010, 11, sort of early 2011, um, and joined this, joined this early stage team that was working on um, some really interesting problems around uh, 3D printing, where we were, uh, you know, the team was founded by uh, industrial designer Scott Summit and a um, uh, orthopedic surgeon, Ken Troner. And they were playing around with the idea of using cheap new 3D scanning technology and emerging 3D printing technology to create customized orthotic and prosthetic products. That's um, so they started with... Very, very early with 3D printing, right? In 2010, 2011? Yeah, they... Yeah, they... Um, there have been sort of... There were two big hype waves um, for 3D printing. One actually in the early 90s, um, and then this this more recent one. It was you know the bespoke got started a little bit before sort of the big run up in attention in sort of 2012 2013. Right. Um, and so it, you know getting getting sort of into that scene early, if you will, meant there was just this ever building you know energy and excitement around it, um, which was pretty cool to see uh, see up close. Um, but yeah, I uh, so I was a software engineer on the team. Um, we were we were working on um, prosthetic fairings, so uh, lower limb prostheses. You know, have a bunch of issues. Mostly, one of the big ones is that they don't look like legs, and so we had developed a system where we would take the you know uh, uh, shape of the mirrored leg and three um, D printed onto you know 
the prosthetic and meet it with the residual limb, and you'd end up with something where if you were wearing pants, no one would know that there wasn't a real leg under there. And if you weren't wearing pants, people would see your like crazy chromed out, you know, prosthetic. I mean, it was it was really taking it from being something that was sort of, you know, either medical mm-hmm. or um, there were people who were trying to hide and making it this like amazing personalized, um, uh, you know, point of pride. And um, we're done, you know, a few other few other products, um, hand and wrist braces for people who are suffering from scoliosis or for um, suffering from um, carpal tunnel and other other hand and wrist conditions, and then um, scoliosis braces as well um, for you know the, the typical scoliosis you know patient, if you will, is a 12 year old girl who's just got a diagnosis, and the uh, you know recommended treatment is that you stay in a brace that goes from sort of below your hips to um, the top of your armpits for 22 hours a day mm. and um, existing braces. And it's the and the, the alternative is uh, what's called spinal fusion surgery. And that's, um, you know, just as much fun as it sounds and has just as many long-term consequences yeah. as it sounds like it would. The brace is the, and, good, the um, good road. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and it, but it's a tough one. It's it's a you wear it for a long time each day, and you wear it for you know months if not years. Um, and you're 12, and probably in middle school. And I don't know what your middle school was like, but uh, wearing a you know giant brace around yeah. um, the middle school I went to wouldn't have been sort of an enjoyable experience. Yeah. I, I currently have a 12 year old girl. My, oh yeah, my daughter is 12 years old, so I could imagine or I really can't imagine what that would be like, um, for her to have to do that. Yeah. Um, and so what, you know, if you, you mentioned an alternate path, which is what we developed where, you know, instead of being this big bulky thing, you need to wear a big sweater over to hide. It's, you know, a quarter inch thick, like you can wear a t-shirt over it and hide it. It just like conforms exactly to the shape of your body. Um, and, uh, you're just a little bit, a little bit less sort of labeled as being a person wearing a brace, um, moment to moment. Um, so we, we were, we were working on products like this. Um, uh, I was a software engineer on the team. And so I was working on, um, technologies around, uh, 3d scanning and 3d scan reconstruction and then, um, some design technologies. And this was sort of the, the really interesting problem here that, that stuck with me is that when you're creating, braces like that, you have this pretty tricky problem where the brace has certain functional requirements and it also needs to conform exactly to the, um, uh, you know, shape of the person. Like if you're, you know, if you imagine typing away, developing carpal tunnel, like, well, it's going to have to a brace that's going to stop that has certain functional properties. It might have clasps on it. It might have a design pattern on it. Um, but it also needs to conform to the shape of my arm. And uh, one of the problems that we worked on was just automating the 3D design of um, those braces. So building systems where you could express design intent and then, you know, have that design intent embodied across, you know, tens, hundreds, thousands of scans, um, sort of with a push of a button. And um, that company was eventually acquired by uh, 3D Systems. That's a you know, large international um, 3D printing company. Um, I spent a few years there. But uh, one thing clicked for me there, um, at least me personally, that, um, you know, other uh, 
the, the sort of previous year of, of working in a lab and, um, you know, interning and uh, working in a bar hadn't, which was this connection between um, developing software and sort of the real world mm -hmm. where we were developing like digital tools. They sat inside our computer, like you can do it. Like, you know, sort of pro programming is this very um, like powerful thing in a way because you tend to control you know the whole the whole universe inside the computer. Um, sometimes it feels like you don't, but um, uh, unlike things in the real world where you're constrained by physical laws or um, dealing with other people, where you know people are going to make their own decisions and they might or might not do the thing that you want. Like you know, inside the inside a computer, you have this illusion of um, complete control and. Um, uh, what was interesting about those projects was, for me at least, was that this this sort of digital world, which is kind of, you know, I enjoy, is kind of fun, um, was connected out to, like, you know, physical things in the real world. We would sort of manipulate, you know, type things on our computer, and then new things would peer out in the world and be right. different and, like, you know, hopefully sort of impact people's lives. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's, and that's, a, that's a very interesting, I've never heard of that Put that way, where where a software developer, somebody who's spending a lot of time writing code and and developing these the software, and, and that their mind like becomes one with the computer over time. That you're 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 where anything is possible, right? If you come up with an idea, you can create it in the virtual world, and then then that virtual world, you can leverage that by taking some of those ideas and bringing them out into the world and making the world a better place by doing that. But it's an interesting idea that, you know, that, uh, anything is possible when you're, when you're working in a computer. Yeah. And I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's restricted to, um, computers. I mean, I feel a lot of what may be attractive about, um, like the architecture profession is that, mm -hmm. um, it, you know, these design decisions that people make and the, the sort of design action, whether it's happening, you know, on a computer or, you know, on paper, um, it's this, it's this really leveraged, um, set of actions and information that gets developed where, um, you know, you can, I mean, if you think about the sort of stack of drawings that, gave rise to like the Empire State Building or the Golden Gate Bridge or something like that. It's, it's like a very, it's like, you know, you can fit it on a couple of tables um, and, you know, you can discuss it and you can change things and you can in a way have this whole building in your head and, you know, push it around and make decisions and think through scenarios. Um, and then when it goes out and gets built, you know, tens, hundreds, thousands, potentially tens of thousands of people are going to use and experience that building for, um, uh, hundreds of years at sort of the extreme. Um, and so I think, I think there's that, that's something that I always thought was sort of interesting about the architecture profession as well, was that kind of, um, you know, leveraged capacity to affect the world that like starting from something kind of small and contained you, um, or sorry, more contained than, you know, a gigantic building. Um, right. cause I know large, large design, large design projects are pretty sprawling. Um, yeah, you end up having this sort of outsize um, impact elsewhere. Um, yeah, I see definitely see that. I didn't see the parallel before you brought that up, but that's very interesting. And it's, it's the same thing that we experience as architects when we're designing that we do. I do that all the time. When I'm designing a building, it becomes real to me that 
that I, I'm walking through it and I'm experiencing it. And then when I go to the site and it's not yet there, I'm always surprised that it's not there because I've been living in it for, for months. And so it's, yeah, it's, yeah. what do you mean it's going to take 18 months right, to get out of the exactly. ground? Like I've, I've been living in it already. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It, it's interesting. The connection between software and, and architecture, very, very similar. Yeah. I mean, I think the like, um, not all software is like that because mm -hmm. a lot of software, you know, does amazing things, but doesn't, um, doesn't necessarily bridge outside of sort of a digital realm, right, if right. you will. It never um, becomes like a lot a physical. of it. Yeah. Yeah. You end up, you're shuttling, shuttling bits or information around and presenting it in new ways on pieces of glass and, you know, you know, radically changing people's lives and workflows as a result. Like mm -hmm. if you think about, you know, the, the many ways that software can sort of positively or negatively impact us. Um, but yeah, I, so I, I thought I had stumbled onto something pretty special when um, I started finding there were these places where you could kind of poke around on your computer and then buildings would end or the first braces um, would end up being different in some yeah. way. Yep. Um, yeah. And so I was, uh, you know, the, from there, it's just sort of a hop and a skip to the, um, architecture and construction space. Um, uh, 3D systems was a, a you know large, well, it was a couple thousand people. Um, so much larger than the sort of ten person company that I had yeah. um, kind of enjoyed. And I uh, at some point decided that I wanted to wanted to look for a new opportunity. And I um, came across this company, Flux, which was a um, uh, another venture backed. Um, startup. Uh, it was a Google X spin out. Um, and it was building a set of computational design and data tools uh, for the built environment. And um, there was a lot of the, the, the sort of fundamental problem that they were trying to tackle. Um, I've tried a few times to sort of bake it down. It was a company with um, really wide ambitions. Mm -hmm. um, was that, you know, projects start from a blank sheet of paper. And um, there are not, like, one of the things that's amazing, again, about software is that, um, like, once you, you can take something complicated that you know, and if you turn it into a software program, and you can set it, and you set it up in the right way so that other people can interact with it, then, you know, way more people can answer the questions that previously only you could answer. Mm -hmm. There's this sort of like leverage that happens um, again with uh, uh, encoding intent into software. And um, looking looking at the you know the, the sort of founding team, it spent some time at Google X looking at a variety of projects, and they had said, okay, there aren't you know there there are many different people have sort of um, developed a an approach or a practice or sets of patterns um, that bring value to, you know, architecture and engineering. Um, but there are not good ways for them to sort of wrap that into software and then make it available on, you know, more projects than they can physically themselves do. And so, um, like a classic example is like stairwell, simple fire egress stairwell layout or um, like ADA compliant bathroom layout, just like, the, um, you know, it's not, it's not about taking, um, necessarily sort of the, the really, um, 
client-facing aspects of the design and automating it. It's about taking this stuff where it's like, okay, like we've done this, you know, right, all the tens, hundreds, yep. over and over and over and over. And like every right. once in a while a mistake happens and then there's just all these consequences of that. And um, yeah, Flux thought that they could take, they could build, you know, tools and a system and a platform where those problems could be solved. And then um, as a result, sort of two things could happen. First, the knowledge workers present in the architecture and engineering space um, would be able to um, develop economics that were based on sort of the value of what knowledge and ideas they had instead of um, the number of drawing sets that they could turn around mm -hmm. um, to sort of make it develop sort of new new revenue streams for architects and engineers. Um, and then second, so that just like many, many more buildings could benefit from a, um, you know, the sort of the, the touch and perspective of um, expert designers. Because, you know, I, I forget the exact statistics, but I want to say that it's still the case that most buildings don't have an architect involved. That's correct. And that yep. that's just like, it's like, it, 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 you know, it boggles, boggles my mind every time I think about it that. It boggles our minds as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so what the company's was it F L O X? F L U X. U X. Okay, because I'm I'm sure everybody's googling it right now, trying to trying to find some information on it because it sounds very interesting. Yeah, it uh, it was very interesting. Um, the uh, uh, it was, you know, you're sort of like thinking if this is a origin story, thinking through the sort of drawn out trajectory, you know, noticing the like venture backed theme. Um, is pretty consistent. Uh, Flux sort of lived and died by um, venture funding um, and ra raised a ton, spent a ton, you know, had trouble sort of navigating that and then um, eventually folded. Or, so it, it uh, sorry, never, it pivoted. never, it, so, it, oh, so it did pivot. All right. So it didn't, uh, yeah. It, what, what did it become? Uh, it became um, a company called Helix that is doing, um, uh, you know, digital twin creation. So sort of site scanning and um, uh, existing conditions mm -hmm. um, scanning and then software around that. Um, so cool, cool stuff, yep. good projects. Um, but the, you know, Flux was um, uh, unfortunately not able to uh, quite make it work. Um, was it uh, was it too early for them or was it just too wide of a, a mission or what happened to them, do you think, in your opinion? Uh, in my opinion, I think the biggest issue was the... Um, uh, that the mission was, I mean, the mission was wide and that was good. The, the, the vision for attracting employees and early partners and customers and investors was big and that was really good. But um, being able to focus in and have a, a path where you start delivering value to the market without mm -hmm. boiling the entire ocean sure. um, that that we that we did not do effectively. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So a big lesson as you moved on. Yeah, tons of tons of lessons for me there. Um, so I was I you know it, I I don't get a ton of credit for what Flux did. Did I think um, maybe some blame? But um, <laughs> you know I was I was I was doing I was on you know on on the engineering team. I ran a couple of the engineering teams yeah. there. Um, but what one of you know what was cool about it there were some just lessons but then also just a chance to learn about um the industry and uh the 
you know, Flux sort of had the Google name attached to it, and that, that opened a lot of doors. Um, sure. So it meant that in a relatively short period of time, um, people who worked there were able to learn a ton about this, you know, fascinating and amazing, you know, architecture and construction industry. Um, and sort of when I decided to move on from uh, Flux, um, there were a bunch of problems there that I thought just like, you know, oh, these are these problems are real. We 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 tried and, you know, we didn't nail them, but that doesn't mean they're not, you know, not good problems. And it doesn't mean that, you know, other people won't be able to solve them. Um, so we, uh, you know, after after a few months, we um, I got together with uh, another engineer that was on the Flux team, Drew Wolpert, and, um, you know, another engineer I uh, knew from my 3D printing days, actually, and then um, uh, Jim Forrester, who was, uh, sort of finishing up at New Forma, um, and uh, we set out to, you know, start up Join and tackle some of the problems that we're now working on today. So, so what is Join, and so what is Join, and what how does it how does it work? Yeah, it's a good question. So, Join's a um, Join's a, a cloud-based platform um, for project teams to collaborate around cost-related decisions. And, you know, if joins, you know, what what we want to do, if, if we got a mission with this existing platform or product, it's um, to make it so that no more projects go through bad value engineering cycles. Um, and it there's this information gap between people who are making decisions that affect, you know, the design and the mm-hmm. schedule and sort of the budget. Um, and the implications of those decisions, whether it's, you know, what the material alternatives are and which materials will work and what that means for, for example, embodied carbon and as well as, as well as cost. Um, and we think that software can help bridge that and make it much lower friction to go back and forth between a design and, you know, a budget or an estimate um, earlier in construction projects. And um, as a result, just and just just take a ton of problems out of you know many people's sort of um, you know day to day lives. I mean, like you know, val- value engineering has a pretty bad name. Yeah. Um, as soon as and, you said that, you got a lot of attention from the people who are listening, and yeah, the, and the and fact that you're focused on trying to solve that problem, there are the the attention is focused right now. Yeah, and you know, we're we're really we're really riding a wave um, of shifts in project delivery method. And um, we've been working more with larger firms, um, but we're seeing, we think market-wide, a continued shift to design build and CM at risk um, project delivery methods. And um, those, you know, a shift to that from traditional project delivery definitely has consequences for the sort of, you know, relationships and structure of the team. But, um, we, we think there are real opportunities there to deliver better projects. Um, and what's, what's key there is the construction team being contractually involved earlier and then um, aligning people so that people are you know, working together iteratively earlier in the process mm-hmm. to understand where things might go a little off course and what the options are to take it forward. Um, and so it, you know, when that happens, really amazing things can happen because in, in the old way, you know, once you get to value engineering, like 
The contractors, pretty unhappy. You know, they they probably are the least unhappy about value engineering, but it usually isn't scheduled for. Right. Um, and so their, their schedule is being thrown up in the air, and they're having to lean on their trade partners whose relationships they have to – they have to be really careful around that to provide more estimates and more ideas and just do more work. Um, the owner is usually, I mean, they're, they're, you know, without, if you need to do it without value engineering, you can't get the project out of the ground. So to some extent, maybe they, they're like, okay, fair dues. But at the same time, we've had so many owners express to us like, yeah, we spent so long understanding and articulating what our priorities were in a project. And then it went into VE and like, we don't recognize what came out the other side. Like, you know, we had a, um, uh, it was someone on Facebook's, um, real estate team and Facebook takes sort of sustainability in their, um, real estate and data center operations, um, pretty seriously. And they have all of these goals and they work on them through the design phase. It goes into value engineering and in, in bad value engineering, which is what we're going to avoid, um, Everything gets thrown up in the air all at once. Everything is on the table. Like it's this chaotic process where a lot of decisions may get made really quickly without necessarily like consulting everyone who might need to be involved. And as a result, the priorities that have been nursed along like can get lost and you just don't know what comes out the other end. Um, and then of course design teams like hate it right. because they've They've poured themselves, they've come, they've lived in these buildings for months already, and then they go into a room where someone is sharpening a gigantic pair of scissors, or at least might appear that someone's right. in there with a big pair of scissors, and like out comes like just this like tattered, like shredded set of drawings. And um, you know, we think that sort of two two things are gonna help with that. One is the shift in project delivery method, um, which we do believe is good for sort of the overall projects. Um, and two, we think a little bit of technology can help, you know, people have transparency and an understanding of what's going on in these projects between all of all of the involved parties in a way that, you know, everybody can have a better experience. Does your does your method require um, the design build or construction management process to be the the delivery method? Um, no, it doesn't require it. Um, what, what we've, so we're, we're pretty early. The product's been in yeah. use for, um, a little under a year. Um, so we've, we've been working mostly with, um, sort of ENR top 100 contractors and their design and owner partners. Um, and so we've done a, you know, a, a few dozen projects, um, for maybe a little over a billion dollars of construction value to date. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's just, I'm just, just want to give numbers because sure, like you know, yeah. when I, yeah, when I say a trend, it's like a trend of like three instead of one project <laughs> or something. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, but the uh, industry, I, I believe the industry is moving in that direction. Any, in anyway, I think the big companies are certainly doing that, but even I see, I hear that in the small firm community as well, that there's a lot of interest in, in, uh, uh, working in construction management and design build in order to have more control uh, of the entire process. We'll be right back to our conversation after this quick break to say thank you to our platform sponsors here at Entree Architect, RCAT, and FreshBooks. Have you been to RCAT.com recently? It's the number one most used website for finding building product information, and it has a new look. RCAT has updated their site to get you the data that you want that much faster. 
Their search now allows you to choose what kind of information you want, like CAD, BIM, specifications, and you only get those results. Just that data, that's all you're going to get. RCAT is also constantly fine-tuning their search engine to make sure you keep getting the information that you ask for, fast and easy. Of course, it's still free and it requires no registration, not even a login. It doesn't require any email. It does not require any money. It's free. If you need building product information and you haven't yet used RCAT, it's time to go check it out. If you've never tried RCAT, head over to RCAT.com and try it out. You'll be glad that you did. That's RCAT.com, A-R-C-A-T.com. Go check it out and let them know that Entree Architect sent you. In case you were wondering, 192 hours works out to about two business days every month. Two business days. Well, why the math? If you're an architect and you're using FreshBooks cloud accounting software, that's the amount of admin time that you can save every year. How? Well, FreshBooks is so fast and so easy to use that it changes the way that you deal with your paperwork. FreshBooks is the simplest way to be more productive, more organized, and most importantly, it will get you paid quickly. You can create and send really professional looking invoices in under 30 seconds. And when you email a client an invoice, FreshBooks can show you whether they've seen it, which puts an end to that guessing game on you know, whether they got that invoice or not. If waiting for a client's check in the mail is slowing you down, slowing down that cash flow, with literally two clicks, you can set yourself up to receive online payments. Oh, and your clients, they will love paying by credit card straight from their invoice. FreshBooks helps you avoid having that awkward talk with your clients about past due payments. FreshBooks automates late payment email reminders. This is my favorite part. So you can spend less time chasing payments and more time working on your projects. If you have any questions whatsoever, FreshBooks award-winning customer service is amazingly helpful. They're super friendly and they have zero attitude. Plus a real hive person usually answers in three rings or less. To claim your month-long unrestricted free trial, go to entrearchitect.com slash freshbooks and enter Entree Architect in the How Did You Hear About Us section. That's entrearchitect.com slash freshbooks. RCAT and FreshBooks. Please visit our platform sponsors today and thank them for supporting you, the Entree Architect community. Because you know that 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 value engineering process is never really planned for. It's always uh, a remediation. It's always something that we're trying to fix. Like we were over budget, and now we have to fix it. And so it wasn't in the schedule. It wasn't in the budget. It, nobody wants it to happen. Um, and so in order to have more control over that, uh, architects are uh, moving towards that method of delivery across the board from large firms to small firms, or at least being interested in that. I mean, that's, that's great to hear. I know that there's um, some uh, trepidation around particularly design build if it's contractor led because Correct. there's a yeah. um, you know perceived shift in power there. Um, right. yeah, I'm, I'm talking about to, ar it's great architect, to hear that the, architect led design build. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah, more, more power to them. Um, the, uh, so one other thing we've heard from um, large firms is a trend towards clients um, writing into contracts, sort of a design to budget. Mm -hmm. um, 
which in which can lead to really disastrous things because you know if you don't get cost feedback and sort of pay attention to things and have the right transparency and access to information early on you end up over budget and then the firm is responsible for the redesign um, which just blows blows project budgets um, and yeah, they, they we we've heard that sort of a trend that the large firms are seeing. Is that have you heard of that in the small firms or? No, I think I mean small firms. The the contracts are much simpler. Um, you know, smaller smaller commercial projects, especially with residential projects, it's a much more of a, a personal connection. Mm -hmm. um, you're still using contracts, but the contracts are nowhere near as as complicated and, and involved uh, as the larger construction firms are are, are requiring. Uh, but, but I think that the, the, uh, sentiment is the same, you know, I think that arch the architects across the board are feeling those same issues and trying to come up with solutions for it. Um, and in my opinion, I, you know, technology are, is some of the solution, uh, certainly methods, uh, uh, shifting methods and being open to those changing methods, which is a big piece of, of it. Architects are typically pretty focused on the way they've always done it. It's hard for them to, to look beyond that. Although I, I feel that's shifting. I think with with internet and technology, people are seeing that there are alternative ways of delivery and that there's, there's benefits to some of those. Um, but I, you know, I think the, the trends typically start in the big, big firms and then they work their way down into the smaller firms. Yeah, that makes sense. Then, um, I guess we'll see, see what happens with with these design to budget, um, you know, style contracts, but uh, it, it looks like they might be on their way then. Um, which is which is not. interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what, how mean, does it, it, how does join dot build fix that problem? You know, that was fix the problem of value engineering. Yeah, that's a great question. So um, what we're what we're seeing with the shift to uh, CMAT risk and design build projects is that you end up with more intermediate um, document deliverables, and at each of those steps, um, the contractor you know is responsible for putting together an estimate um, based on it. And um, this is a challenge for the construction team for a bunch of reasons. Um, sort of the pre-construction and estimating functions inside of. Um, uh, Contractors have grown out of the design bid build methodology, which means that they're, you know, traditionally have been oriented around a 100% um, CD document set and spec book sort of coming in and then needing to turn around a hard bid number, right. like just as quickly as possible. And just, you know, you sort of one in one in one in two, one in three, one in five, one in 10 that you bid, you get. Um, and then you're sort of stuck with that number. And um, getting involved at, you know, we're seeing teams are involved as early as like a 50% schematic design deliverable. And so they're working to put a number to it and provide cost information about where they think the project is and then potentially working with trade, starting to identify trade partners and getting their feedback on sort of, hey, are there constructability issues here? Are we, you know, going to be in trouble um, around anything around the sort of myriad complexities of a uh, construction project, um, and uh, the one of the big challenges there is that, of course, a uh, you know fifty percent schematic design document set. There's just a lot less there than you know a full construction document set, and the um, they're, they're being forced to to price the white, um, yeah. and then there, which is it's just it's, it's hard. Yeah. Um, a lot of guessing, and then 
Yeah, a lot of guessing. Um, and then, but the flip side of it is they get to get involved many more times. Um, and so what we see is that a um, documents that will come over and estimate done, and then, you know, the owner-architect contractor team will get together and say, hey, like, here's where we are. Here's where, you know, the sort of estimate is relative to the budget. I think we can both guess which of those is over the other, you know, for most projects at sort of every step of the way. Um, but usually, usually it's over budget, ideally a little bit over or just, you know, um, maybe it's at budget. And then the, the team has an opportunity to collaboratively identify opportunities to, to bring the project forward. And what, what we're seeing is that um, without join, that process is run out of you know, complicated Excel spreadsheets. Mm -hmm. um, and don't get me wrong, Excel is a, a magical tool, sure. but complicated Excel spreadsheets and email that live on, um, you know, one person's computer. And the these cycles are happening, you know, maybe every few, as little as every week or two um, for certain projects. And as, you know, maybe with as long a periodicity as a few months. Um, but it means that in, you know, a few days or a week or two, you know, any ideas that are going to come out need to be evaluated and vetted and passed through sort of a number of people who might, you know, have ideas um, or feedback on it and then passed to the owner to be decided on. And then, you know, then the design team needs to pick it up and incorporate it into the design as it goes forward. And um, the having that information and process locked up on someone's computer means that it's very hard for the wider team to access it. So, the design team might, you know, in the old way, only be able to see sort of what's on the table once a month mm -hmm. in a meeting, and it's it it isn't enough information, and it's in a spreadsheet that's complicated. It's just like hundreds of rows with dozens of columns, and it's difficult for the design team to make that actionable um, because there's a lot there's a lot of creativity that the design team can bring to solving these problems when they understand what's going on. And so, um, and there's an join, interpretation between every one of those lines and rows, what that's referencing in the drawings. There's, there's no direct connection there. It's, it's a, you're looking at the rows and columns and, and making an assumption on what those rows and columns are identifying on the drawings. Yeah. Um, yeah, like where, like you might see a certain certain material and be like, where in the project like is this used? And like, you know, just being able to drill in and understand, so have summary information that helps helps the team orient around where problems are, so to just make it easy to say, hey, actually the project's doing pretty well, except for the atrium, and the atrium is like blowing us up right now. So like, let's all let's all focus our attention on the atrium here, and like, let's see if we can make some changes here and. What this means is that the, the design team's able to better understand what's going on. They have a lot more access to information that's um, a lot more easily um, uh, understandable and consumable. Um, and then the, the design team and the construction team both share a need for the owner to make sort of timely decisions as much as possible, right? Like, you know, you, you can't, you, you can't choose all the finishes and then run around and like change the structural system or like, you know, decide that you want to go open floor plate instead of something else, right? Like the, the, you, both, both parties sort of share a need to guide the owner to make, you know, decisions at the right time in the right order. And, um, 
So just having this information be readily accessible for everyone um, and then easy to understand means that a lot of these things just happen with more transparency and more trust and less friction, um, which means that instead of it taking six weeks to get a set of decisions where the design is continued, now you can get those decisions in two weeks. So you just like if there's any sort of course correction that happens, there's that much less course correction that's necessary. Um, and there are many more opportunities to be a part of the process and help you know, help help the team as a whole not, you know, do anything, sort of throw the baby out with the bathwater, if you will. There are many more opportunities to advocate for, like, what's really critical in a design to say, like, oh, yeah, I understand, I understand this portion is expensive or this material is sort of, like, has issues with it, but it's a really critical design feature because the owner is very excited about, you know, it's demanding that we deliver, you know, a project with these characteristics. And so, yeah, this is expensive, but, like, this is, this is key. Oh, but these constructability issues you identified in another part of the project, just as an example, like, oh, great, let's go identify all of those. That's that's easy pickings. Um, right, right. And and so yeah. to take the example of the atrium, rather than just going after the atrium and taking down the the design feature of the entire building that we all spent so much effort on and wanted, and and ruining it, if there's other places we can go and easily identify all these other areas that can add up to a significant amount that equals what we, that then we can keep the atrium the way it is or modify it less and take out all those other areas that are less impactful on the design and function of the building. Yeah, exactly. And like the result of it is just like a better, you just get a better project out. Um, and like, you know, we, we, we think there are opportunities for software to help people deliver better buildings and um, helping make decisions like that is, um, you know, one of the ways we think it's pretty impactful. How is joined What's the interface in Join? I mean, how does how does Join do that? How does how does Join facilitate that early communication and and efficient communication? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so Join's a, a web-based tool, um, so you access it uh, through a browser, um, and uh, you know there's certain information that needs to end up inside of Join, some of which is just uploaded or connected through something like a document management tool. If you want to be able to quickly reference you know, certain parts of the drawings, for example, or certain parts of a model to say like, hey, when we're talking about this, we're talking about over here in the design just for visual context. Um, cost data or estimate data tends to come in from uh, the construction team and then um, uh, folks work to evaluate and develop um, and present um, all of this information, you know, inside of JOIN. And so um, some information gets sort of entered or worked with directly inside of JOIN. There's a sort of the, a layer of, um, 21st century workflow tooling on top of it. So there's, you know, collaborative aspects of it. You can assign things, you can, you know, attach due dates, you can sort of group and slice and dice the data in many different ways. Um, and then you end up, you know, for any decision that you might be making, like say, um, uh, you know, switch from a switch from a, a curtain wall to a window walled system, because we think that it can be interior glazed and that'll save a ton of, ton of money. And as a result, we'll be able to spend more money in the atrium, for example. Um, all of the information that pertains to that one decision ends up in a single place where you have it collected and ready to present. So you make the most informed decisions. You don't make any bad decisions. Um, and you get an audit trail of everything that went into it. Um, because, um, I mean, it's like in the sort of in, in bad value engineering, it's like so chaotic that why did we do this? Who decided this? How right. did we end up right. here? Like those questions are often impossible to answer. Um, but right. with join, you've got and this. And usually this. you start asking those questions as it's being built, which is yeah. too, too <laughs> yeah, late. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
So yeah, is is exactly. are there? So it sounds like there's a there's a document management part of it. Is there a collaboration tool section? I mean, can you meet inside, join as a team, like w through video conference, or are you using other other tools for that? Yeah, typically. Um, so we don't we connect to document management systems, but the world's got enough document. I'm sure your customers yep. are being overloaded with document management tools already. We integrate with those. We don't, you know. Um, we don't need to build another one. Um, and then uh, join gets used in a few ways as part of collaborative experiences, but we're similarly not going to reinvent um, video conferencing. Sure. Um, so it's a it's an online tool. It's got you know um, sort of two two ways that it's used is is one just sort of people um, interacting asynchronously through it. So sort of seeing updates come through from other people, responding to it, assigning it, that sort of thing. Um, and then collaboratively, uh, joins used to run um, uh, both proposal meetings, but then also sort of the weekly or biweekly owner architect contractor team meetings. Mm -hmm. I mean, it gets um, pulled up on a screen and sort of run through live, or um, we generate we generate well formatted print views. So you can either have a PDF that you email around if you just want something that's a little simpler, or you know physical printouts because a lot of people um, like something that they can hold on to. Um, so we sort of facilitate pushing the information out um, both of those ways. And then, you know, people, people do with it what they will. And, and what's, what's the future for Join? What, what are you hoping that it can grow into? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, the, uh, you know, we think that there's a, this industry trend around project delivery method is really exciting because it gives, um, you know, it sort of has wins for everyone in the industry, but um, we think it gives opportunities for transparency and collaboration to happen between people um, in a way that um, aligns them around delivering better projects. And we believe that, you know, in the long run, join joins a platform that supports sort of all of the parties involved in making these decisions around um, design projects in a way that they're able to leverage all of the information, all of their teammates on a project, information from past projects, what they've done before that has worked as well, as well as, um, you know, an understanding of what the possibilities are, are in the wild, wider world so that Join can, you know, under, come to understand about projects to be able to say, hey, hundreds of other projects have gone up like this. You know, this is, it's a uh, four-on-one multifamily, you know, building in Northern California. I can probably see three, three of them from, you know, my, my living room, for example, um, here are opportunities that other projects have found impactful to either take costs out or, you know, improve the tenant experience or boom, 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 boom. Um, so, yeah, we, we, we see ourselves sort of sitting, sitting in between and um, helping highly skilled, uh, you know, design and construction and development professionals um, deliver, deliver better buildings. Are you accepting projects currently or is it in beta where you you're working with just a few to sort of uh build and develop yeah we're accepting um we're accepting projects right now the um uh our you know there's a um uh i guess my contact info probably including with this but on our website there's a form where you can reach out and that goes you know straight to the straight to the team um if anybody's interested but um we're we've gotten started with um because they tend to be larger contractors, the projects have tended to be a little bit larger as well. Yep. Um, so we've 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 been deployed on projects ranging from a, a little under ten million dollars to um, several hundred million. Um, 
and we've got a we've got an interest in um, bringing that floor down because they're 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 like you know probably again most buildings even you know most well most projects even most non single family projects um, probably cost less than ten million dollars probably cost less than five million dollars um, if not less than two and so we we want to address smaller projects probably not single family um, but. Um, we're maybe not ready to have a really effective experience for um, really small projects mm -hmm. just yet. Yeah. Um, so I think given those qualifiers around sort of project size where we, you know, we really want people to have an amazing experience and come back and say like, yeah, I'm using join on every project going forward. Um, yeah. Inside of, inside of that range of project size, um, bring it on. All right. Sounds good. Join.build. Anybody wants to go check it out and learn more about it, join.build. Um, Andrew, before we wrap up, I'd like to ask you the same question that I ask ev everybody who joins me here at Entree Architect Podcast. What is one thing that a small firm architect can do today to build a better business for tomorrow? Yeah, I would say figure out how to not charge fee for service. Um, the uh, One of the biggest challenges that we've seen for um, uh, large design firms mostly is that in a fee-for-service or like a paid-by-the-hour um, way of doing business, it's difficult to adapt or it's more difficult to adapt to the changing landscape of project delivery and technology sort of opportunities um, that are in front. And, you know, we think that in the long run, um, business models that are oriented around, um, you know, more around the value of what gets provided, whether or not that's leaning into design build and leading design build um, or something else, um, and less around the number of hours spent pushing around uh, design details, you know, on a computer and paper, um, are going to be the uh, you know more profitable and more durable business models. Very very interesting. We could have an entire another hour having that conversation. So, yeah. So, but very very interesting. I think that's a wake up call for for our listeners. Uh, and so so play that back. Go back and listen to that again. And listen to what Andrew just said. And uh, and respond to it because uh, that's the future of our profession. So start start paying attention and being open to the change and the evolution of our profession, because I think that's, uh, you know, you, we're, we're starting to hear a lot about, uh, and we've been hearing about this for a long time, of, of the obsolescence of the architect, the technology is going to take over and other professions are going to take over. That will happen if we don't evolve and we don't change and we don't start adapting. And, and it's, it's, it's the way things work, but we will adapt and we will make changes uh, and we will survive and we will thrive. And so, uh, Andrew, thank you for, for sharing that. Um, again, it's join.build. Go check them out. Um, you can follow join on Twitter as well. It's join.build, spelled out, J-O-I-N-D-O-T, build, join.build. Uh, Andrew, thanks for uh, waking up early. You're over on the West Coast. We're doing this early. Uh, it's a very interesting conversation. I love what you're doing over at join. So thanks for uh, sharing your knowledge here at Entree Architect Podcast. Great. Thank you so much for having me, Mark.
you're listening to episode 295. If you'd like to access the show notes or share this link with a friend, it's entrearchitect.com slash episode 295. entrearchitect.com slash episode 295. Hey, did you hear that we have a new workshop, a one-day workshop? You know, we all have a plan and we all have this idea of what we want our life to look like. Get more work, make more money, find better projects, work with the clients who value our skills and appreciate our talents as architects. You know, we're all working so hard at playing this game the best we can, but with each passing year, it feels like it's getting harder and harder to make our dreams come true. Each year, we set our goals, and right about now, as the end of the year approaches, we look back and we wonder where the time was spent. It's almost 2020, and the goals that we set for 2019, maybe they just didn't happen. This year, let's do it differently. Let's set one goal. Let's make this easy. Let's identify the single most important goal for your firm for 2020. And let's build a step-by-step plan to make it happen. Let's actually make it happen this year. Join me on Thursday, November 7th from 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. live on Zoom online video conference for the Entree Architect one-day planning workshop. This is the workshop that so many of the Entree Architect community has been asking for. It's interactive. We will work together to get this done. It's time-focused. It's only one day. You just invest one day. It's actionable. When you're done, you'll have a plan for 2020. And it's value-packed. It's the lowest-priced workshop that we've ever offered. Every firm has a one goal, the single most important goal that such by doing it, everything else will be easier or unnecessary. Yes, it's inspired by the book, The One Thing. Let's identify your one goal and let's build a plan to achieve that goal in 2020. Let's make 2020 your best year ever. Invest one day with me and I will work with you to get this done. Join me on November 7th. Register now at entrearchitect.com slash one day. Spelled out O-N-E-D-A-Y. entrearchitect.com slash one day. Join me. Love, learn, and share what you know. Thanks for listening. Have a great week. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, Well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders, Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges. 
demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> I did it, guys. Oh one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Calling all small firm architects. It's time to tap into your full potential with Entree Architects Context and Clarity where inspiration meets innovation. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my two favorite co-hosts, Jeff Eccles and Katie Kangas, as they bring together authors, experts, and thought leaders for electric conversations with entrepreneur architects around the globe. It's not just a podcast, it's a community where dreams meet action. There is a simple equation there. And what for me, what that did, just doing that basic calculation was, it allowed me to compare what I had actually saved in my retirement accounts to what I thought a possible projected annual spend might be. Artists are temperamental, so beautiful design is gonna be a priority. When the job is done, we're gonna actually need to live in the house, not live with the person who designed it. So for me, the the artistic skill, the architectural skill is most important. And so I would say like that would be 60% of it, if not more. Gain insights to build a successful practice. Subscribe, engage, and let's redefine your future together. Join the Context and Clarity community where every conversation adds to your blueprint for success.